0: Revelation chapter 2, we'll look at uh, verses 1 through 7. And uh, tonight we begin going through the letters to the churches in John's Revelation. So, verse 1 says, To the angel of the church of Ephesus, write These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience, and have labored for my name's sake, and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly, and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Amen. So what if... Jesus himself were to write a letter to Providence Presbyterian Church here in coming. What do you think he might say? Well, in one sense, he has written a church. He's written the whole Bible. He's given us the word of God and these letters that are found here in Revelation. They do apply to us because they are part of God's holy word but if you look down in chapter two and verse seven, notice what it says. It says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the church. As plural churches. And so these letters, in fact, this whole book of Revelation, uh, copies were to be made and the messengers were to take each a copy back to their own congregations. We'll talk about this in a moment, but remember the messengers mentioned in uh, chapter one, the angels, uh, we believe, were probably the pastors of the various churches mentioned in Revelation. And I'll just go ahead and mention it now. The word angel is angelos, and it does refer in the Bible to the celestial beings that uh, are in heaven where God is and Um, are oftentimes found in Scripture coming down to the earth, announcing the birth of Christ and so forth. But also, the word simply can mean messenger. And in the book of Revelation, there are times where these messengers are corrected or rebuked, and that does not seem characteristics of any of the angels. If you're an angel, you're either a holy angel or you are a fallen angel. And so the point is, that when we talk about the angels here in chapter 1 and chapter 2, in fact, if you look at verse 1, it says, To the angel, to the messenger of the church of Ephesus write. And uh, the point is that these letters, along with the book of Revelation, they were to be distributed among the various churches. So if you were at Ephesus, you would also get the church, or the letter, rather, written to the church in Smyrna and so forth. And so all that's to say is that what we find here is a letter not only written to Ephesus, it is a letter written to every congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ throughout time. And of course, that includes us today. And so what we're going to do is look at this message that Jesus has sent to the church at Ephesus. So there are three headings, no surprises there, three headings as to what we'll see tonight. We're first going to look at the recipient's of this message, the ones to whom Jesus wrote initially. He wrote to the church, the saints, the redeemed of Ephesus, those Christians that the Lord gathered in that place. And so first of all, we should see that it's written to a pastor and his flock, um, to the angel of the church at Ephesus. And um, let me speak for a moment about Ephesus itself. If you've ever done any Bible study, um, you probably have studied a little bit about this ancient city of Greece. And uh, at the time of John, it was one of the greatest uh, provinces of Asia. Uh, In fact, it's been called the light of Asia during biblical times. Uh, there are many rivers and roads which converged together in this city, making it a, a great place of commerce. It was a natural harbor. And uh, so it became a very wealthy place because of business and the marketplace there. Um, this city, this ancient city, was known for one of the seven wonders of the world. The temple of Diana or Artemis or Artemis rather. Um, and by the way, that temple employed many people, many of whom were uh, criminals. Uh, there were those who made idols, the silversmiths. We read about them in the book of Acts, and uh, there were prostitutes and that sort of thing. So um, as one of the uh, ancient philosophers of Greece said, Heraclitus, he said, no one can live in Ephesus without weeping at its morality. And so Ephesus was an evil place. Um, But God, in particular, the Lord Jesus Christ, who builds his church, he began a church there. And you can read about that in Acts chapter 19, Acts chapter 20. This was a church that began well. The Apostle Paul ministered there. In fact, he probably ministered there the longest in all of his missionary journeys. And uh, it was a church built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And, of course, Paul, again, spent much time there. In chapter 20 of Acts, we find him bidding farewell uh, to the Ephesian elders. And he talks about his ministry, how he ministered house to house and and so forth. He preached the word, the whole counsel of God uh, to this church. And therefore, it was a strong church doctrinally. And we can see as well in practice, too. Um, this is not the only letter written to the church at Ephesus. Ephesians, but there are two others. Do you know what they are? First Timothy and second Timothy were written to the church at Ephesus. That's where Paul left Timothy uh, to pastor that flock there. And so in the scriptures, we have four letters then written to this church. So we know pretty Um, a pretty good amount about it. And uh, as the Lord says here, as we could say, summarizing our Lord's words, this was a commendable church. They were founded on the apostles and prophets and the doctrine there, but also they got off to a good start and they continued in their good work, as Jesus notes. Um, They were an active church. If you look there, verse two, he says, Jesus says, I know your works. Your labor, your labor, your toil. Of course, he says your patience, that you cannot bear those who are evil. So they engaged in the work of the church. They uh, were a steadfast church. Uh, they had patience. They persevered in spite of opposition and the work that was to be done. And uh, also they were a pure church. It says, you cannot bear those who are evil, and you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars. They were pseudo-apostles. And so not only were they busy about the work of the church, they were doctrinally sound and uh, were able to detect false doctrine, therefore. And Christ commends them for these attributes. And so they were a pure church in doctrine. They were a pure church in practice. Now, before we move on, let me just ask you a question. Do these characteristics make you think of any branch of the Christian church today? A church that is pure in doctrine and pure in practice. I heard that. <laughs> I could say the Reformed Church. Um, because if, if you've been in other churches before, other contexts, maybe you've heard things like this. Well, doctrine doesn't matter that much or doctrine divides. Um, you just need to follow Christ. And the answer to that is, well, which Christ are you going to follow? You're going to follow the Christ of the Mormons. You're going to follow the Christ of the Jehovah's Witness. You're going to follow the Christ of the Pentecostal Oneness, holiness, you know, so you've got to have doctrine. We recognize that. But at the same time, here's my point. It sounds a lot like a church that is zealous for the truth and zealous to do what is right. And so, yes, it describes uh, the Reformed Church, but not only the Reformed Church, other faithful churches, churches seeking to be faithful as well. So that's a little bit about the recipients of this letter. Now let's talk about the one who wrote it, the sender of this message. Of course, that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, he is pictured here again as the one in verse 1 who holds the seven stars in his right hand. The seven stars are the messengers, the preachers, the pastors. And as we saw previously in chapter 1, this ought to be a comfort to us. The Christ Christ holds every Christian, John 10, he's the good shepherd, and he holds every Christian in his hand. No one can snatch those Christians out of his hand. And of course, he holds the Father's hand as well. And it should be comforting to know that we are exactly where Christ would have us this moment. Um, Just as a footnote, there have been difficult times in my Christian life. If you've been a Christian long enough, you'll have difficult times too. They're called trials. James talks about that. But I was in a very difficult trial, 2,000 miles away from my birthplace, from family. And I had a godly older pastor that I met with. I was a pastor at this time. And uh, he just looked me in the eyes. He says, you know, you need to know. That yes, bad things happen. And and yes, you can run from the will of God and all this, but at the same time, you are exactly where the Lord wants you. At this moment, at this place. And that's important for us to remember. Christ holds us in his right hand. The hand of strength, the hand of protection, the hand of comfort, and all of those things, the right hand uh, represents refuge, refuge, and so forth. But also, um, he is the one, verse 1 says, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Remember chapter 1 says that the golden lampstands are what? The church. And there's a lot to unpack there, um, but the point is Christ walks among his church. Remember, this is Revelation There is much symbolic language. And uh, the reason I mention that is because where is Christ, by the way, since his ascension? He's at the right hand of God the Father, seated on the throne of David in heaven, reigning over heaven and earth. Um, The body of Christ is not omnipresent. But Christ is present. He walks in the midst of his churches. How? By his spirit. His spirit indwells his people. His spirit indwells his churches. But also, as he is the God-man, the God part of our Lord Jesus Christ is omnipresent, okay? And the point is, these Christians here who by the way we will see were kind of going through the motions and they were faced with this persecution from the world in which they lived, perhaps they wondered, what is Christ doing or where is he? Well, he's holding them in his right hand and he's right there in their midst. That's key as we'll see. You know, there's this this saying, if you're a Christian and you feel far from God, God hasn't gone anywhere, what's the implication? You've gone somewhere. And that's what Christ is about to lower on these Christians at Ephesus. So he's in the midst of his church. But also he's the one who knows his church. He says there in verse 2, I know your works. You know, this morning we saw that conversation between Jesus and the woman at the well, the woman of Samaria. And uh, he's able to tell her what is going on in her life, that the man that she is with at that time is not her husband. Why? Because he's God. He's all-knowing. He's omniscient. And Christ knows our works today. If we are serving Christ, he knows it. If we are doing things in his name, he sees it. And that should be a source of comfort. Um, But at the same time, if you look at verse 2 and it says, I know your works, that could also be a little uncomfortable. Because maybe we've been inactive. Or maybe we've been doing things we shouldn't be doing. Christ knows. And he knows that about these Christians here at Ephesus. He knows what's going on. And so we need to stop and see the picture. Here's the church at Ephesus, a church that is pure in doctrine, a church that is pure in practice. On paper, they're great and their calendar is full. They're persevering in the faith. They have patience, endurance. They can't stand or stomach. It could be translated. You can't stomach those who are evil. And so from all outward appearances, they seem fine. But there's a knock at the door. This knock comes in the form of this letter, which has this message of Christ in it. And so before you lose hope, you think about your own walk with the Lord, that he knows where you are today spiritually You need to know that there was something amiss here at Ephesus. And so then let's get to the heart of the message and see what Jesus says to them. Um, I'll I'll pick up at verse three. He says again, you have persevered and you have patience and you've labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Nevertheless, but I have this against you. I mean, what if Christ wrote a letter to us and he says, Providence, I have this against you. That you have left your first love. So what is the diagnosis? They've left their first love. Hmm. What does that mean? Ultimately, it means that they have left their love for Jesus say, but they're Christians. Yes. Do Christians backslide? Do Christians sin? Yes. Do we neglect the means that God has given to us to increase our love and obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ, to the triune God? Yes, we can and we do. Think about it like this. Um, It is possible for two people lawfully to be married in the sight of God for decades and to be faithful outwardly, externally, and yet lose love for one another. If you don't nourish that relationship, if you don't cherish that relationship and work at that relationship, You can be like two ships passing in the night as you walk through the hallway in your house. Yeah, we're married. We're happily married. We're living together. But there's not much love going on. And that can happen in the Christian's life. And again, as I've already alluded to, that's one-sided. It's not because Christ is gone anywhere. He's still walking amongst the lampstand. The Spirit, if you're a Christian, the Spirit is still indwelling you but we can grieve the Holy Spirit, right? Ephesians four and the Holy Spirit. Romans eight tells us is the spirit of Christ. And so they've left their first love. Perhaps it goes like this, you know, outwardly they're still attending worship, the assembling assembly of the saints, but there's no real joy in that worship. Um, Maybe there's no real desire to be around other Christians, even though they're still engaging. Maybe the ministry of the word, whether it's preaching or teaching, and if they get to it, reading, just doesn't have that same effect anymore in their lives. Um, there can be different reasons for that. But G.K. Beale, I think he gets at something when he says, that probably the heart of the matter is that they have lost their passion for the gospel what is the gospel well, let me ask you another question we we could unpack that over several months paul stayed in ephesus 3 years but really you can you can you can answer that question with one word. And I'll change the question a little bit. Who is the gospel? Jesus. Jesus Christ. And so they've lost their passion. They've lost their, their focus. In fact, what, what is their focus? I mean, they are focused on some things. Well, they're focused on the purity of the church. Again, sound doctrine, refuting error. Things that need to be done. Christ commends them for these things. But you see, it's true in our lives, isn't it? Our strengths can also be our weaknesses. Our strengths can be our weakness. So if we're mighty in doctrine, perhaps we, we exalt that. And that itself is our focus just the teaching itself. Whereas God has given us his word, he's given us teaching to transform us, to enable us to worship him more through our love and obedience to him. And there's this relationship in churches as a whole, uh, in Christians individually, and I've experienced this. I'm gonna. I'll be the first one to stand up here and confess that a lack of love leads to a lack of evangelism. Because what does Christ call the church here? The lampstand. Um, so while they're refuting all this doctrine, perhaps the tendency could be to see the outsider as the enemy. And so the result is that churches become ingrown. And that's unhealthy. Yes, parents, we want to keep the world's influence out of the lives of our families. We want to keep the world's influence away from our children. Yes, yes, yes. But we are to prepare our children to go and live in the world and to be light. In the darkness, that doesn't mean we become like the world in order to minister to the world. We're in the world, not of it. And yet we alone, Jesus says, we alone are the salt and light of the world as his church, the lampstand in the darkness. In Matthew 24, Jesus, he warned that uh, even at this time that the love of many will grow or wax Cold. In fact, keep your finger there in Revelation, turn to Ephesians chapter 3. The Apostle Paul, who did not shy away from the whole counsel of God, who did not shy away from doctrine, apostolic doctrine, he wrote this letter to the Ephesians, the Christians at Ephesus, and and roughly the first three and a half or so chapters, they're all doctrine, pretty much. And then he gets to the application towards the middle or end of this letter. So Paul, again, does not shy away from it. But right in the middle, you could say at the heart of this letter in chapter 3, beginning at verse 14, he says, for this reason, well, that takes us to the previous verses, Uh, Verse 13 and so forth. Um, He's talking about the mystery of the gospel. Verse 13. Therefore, I ask that you do not lose heart at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. And so then in verse 14 says this. For this reason, I bow my knees to the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is why I pray for you. This is how I pray for you. From whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. That he would grant you according to the riches of His glory, He's talked about that in chapter 1, to be strengthened with might through His Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend what? With all the saints, what is the width and the length and the depth and height of To know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. For what did Christ pray for these Ephesians? That these Ephesians would be strengthened and empowered by the Holy Spirit to know the immeasurable love of Jesus Christ. And so that prayer, no doubt, was answered. But in time, Jesus comes to them and says, I have this against you. You have left your first love. Back in 2008, 2008 my family and I were, were gifted with a wonderful uh, a blessing, a gift. We were gifted with a gift. I guess that's redundant. Anyway, we got to go to Europe, to Scotland and England. Um, I mean, I got to see parts of England that go, you know, goes back uh, a long time. But then we went to Scotland. You know, that's kind of the Holy Grail for uh, Presbyterians, where John Knox ministered. We were on the Royal Mile. We stayed on the Royal Mile. And uh, we, we worshiped at these old churches. One church was like just right at the, the foot of the Edinburgh Castle. That's a whole nother story. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you that some other time. But here's my point. This nation, which God granted the prayer to John Knox that he would give him Scotland. This nation, which was not only once Christian, but Presbyterian at the time we were there, only had 6% of its population that attended church. And if you mention John Knox's name in public, people frowned upon him. This great Christian leader in the church of Christ. And so this does happen. Um, Another example of this is Spurgeon. You know, if you've heard of Spurgeon's conversion story, he, he was... Um, basically, basically just at a low point in his life, and he just meandered into this little, I think, Methodist church, and uh, he was like one of ten people there, and this preacher who fumbled over his words, he kept pleading with those who were there to look to Christ, to look to Christ, and he talks about how this, every word that fell off of this man's lips, he just held on to, and, and Spurgeon was converted, he was full of joy. But then Spurgeon talking about passages such as the one we're looking at, he says, well, there came this time where I go back to that experience and all I can think about is how that minister fumbled over his words, his poor grammar and so forth. He paid attention more to his style and so forth. And so the point is he became critical and not so thankful for that preacher who led him. Christ. And I've given thought as to how this might happen. It happens for different reasons. But there is this relationship and we have to be careful with with doctrine. Um, Sound doctrine as I've already said is necessary. But something can happen. You can become so fixated on being right and proving others wrong, that you lose the intent for God giving us doctrine and teaching in the first place. Biblical and sound doctrine and theology should always lead to affection and love and glorification and worship of God. Just look at Romans eleven thirty-six to go and see that. When I, when I left for Sematary, almost said it. When I left for seminary, my uncle said, so you're going to cemetery? Because what can happen is you just become so polemic in seminary. You you not only debate those who've written terrible books and preach terrible theology, you start to debate all the time your classmates. And the focus is lost. Well, I could go on and on and on. That old hymn says, I'm prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. So, no doubt if you've been a Christian for some time, you've you've experienced this. So that's what Christ says. What is the prescription? Well, he says three things here in verse 5. Remember, repent, and do. Christ wants them to go back in time to remember, he says, therefore, from where you have fallen... You need to go back and see there. There was a, a cutoff. There was a transition in your Christian life and walk where you left that first love. So go back before that. And what was it that you were like? What was it that you did? And so he's telling them to call to mind their first days as a disciple and lover of him, of Jesus. We could go back and look at Ephesus and see how there was much buzz in that city in Acts chapter 19 and chapter 20 and how they were a young congregation. They loved the Lord. They followed Christ and they saw their own town changed because of that. Some of them in their town got, well, there was a riot as well. But for me in my life, I know that I go back and I, I have to do this from time to time. And I go back and I, I say, OK, I, I can recall about the time I was converted. Some of you can't. You've been converted for a long time, perhaps when you're very young. But you, have, you still have to go back and say, OK, my life was like this. Now it's like this. What was different? And for my own life, I know that I knew one thing. I was going to hell and Jesus came and died so I didn't have to go there. Now I'm in his church. This is a wonderful place. Yeah, there's a bunch of sinners in there. I'm in there too. But this is great. That's pretty much what I knew. And I sing these songs, these old hymns of the faith that taught me theology and doctrine. I read my Bible. I guarded my time with the word. Even if I I had to be at the bakery at 5 a.m., And go to school later that day. Guess what? I got up before that so I could spend time in the Word. I carried a pocket, Gideon's New Testament, in my pocket so when I took a break, I could be in the Word. I I guarded my prayer time and all of that. I spent time with other Christian guys who were godlier than me so that I could grow. Iron sharpens iron, right? And so those are some of the things that I look, look back to in my own life. And so then he says, not only remember, he says, repent, metanoia, have a change of heart, a change of mind that results in obedience, new obedience to the Lord. Then he says, do, do the first works they did when they first became Christian. Remember their love for God, their love for Christ, their love for neighbor, their love for one another as fellow Christians. This has evidently been a problem with God's people for ages, because in Jeremiah 2, God tells his people there. first two verses it says the word of the Lord came to me. Jeremiah saying, go and cry in the hearing of Jerusalem, saying, thus says the Lord, I remember you, the kindness of your youth, the love of your betrothal when you went after me in the wilderness in a land not so. And so that's the prescription. Remember, repent, and do. And so if this describes you tonight, Christ is calling you to do this very thing and not to take it lightly. And collectively as a church, this should sober us a little bit or maybe a lot because there's also the prognosis here. What would happen if they just let it go? What's going to happen to this church? That's in verse six, or rather verse five. He says, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. And so what does Christ say? He's gonna come to them. And by the way, when we talk about the coming of Christ, it's not always a bodily return. He comes to them here or promises that if they don't repent, he will come to them in judgment. And remove their lampstand. He'll move that church. He'll remove it. And the other letter, another letter, he's going to say, you're neither hot, you're neither cold. You're lukewarm. Christ wants us to be on fire for him with our love. And to be a testimony, to be the lampstand that we've been called to be. And uh, this church didn't last In fact, the city didn't last either. It eventually washed away because of its uh, shore. The silt would eventually um, be washed away. There are the ruins of Ephesus to this day, but there's no church of Ephesus. And in would come Islam and take the place of the Christian church there. So that's the prognosis. But there is that promise in verse 6, Christ commends them. You know, if you've got something, if you've got that hard thing to say, this is just a leadership thing here. Parents, uh, leaders in other areas. Um, if you have something negative that you must say to someone, don't make that the only thing. Try to find something commendable. Try to be an encouragement. You don't want to just punch them in the gut and walk away. You want to be an encourager as well. And Christ the the great, patient, graceful leader that he is. He says in verse 6, but this you have that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. They'll come up again in another letter. They led God's people into license for sin. Christ hates sin. He hates our sin he died that he might save his people from their sins. And so we're to hate what Christ hates. But here's the thing. What if one of the Nicolaitans would become a true follower of Christ? And we have to keep that understanding when we deal and engage with those who oppose Christ. Then there's the promise there in verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches To him, whoever comes, I will give to you to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. And so we must persevere in our walk with the Lord, in our relationship with him. And so if and when we do, he promises us to eat from that tree which was offered in the garden and which is the benefit and the joy of our Salvation. And so when it comes to doctrine and practice, purity and doctrine, purity and practice, and our love for Jesus Christ, it's not either or. It's both. Let us not focus on one to the neglect of the other, but let us persevere and make progress in both. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this letter, which rebukes us at times. We confess it. And Lord, we pray, as the old hymn writer wrote, that we would not outlive our love to thee. And Lord, in order for us to do that, you have to strengthen us. You have to give us your grace, the grace to persevere, the ability to love and follow you. And so we pray for that as well, for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Oh. Come down, found. Should be last Thank you. Before. Can we do uh, the third stanza a cappella? Yeah. Third stanza is going to be a cappella. Let's stand up since it's the last one. All four stanzas...